Welcome to Wine Country Women with Michelle Mandreau, the podcast for wine enthusiasts who are curious not only about what goes in the bottle, but the remarkable women who make these distinctive winemaking regions so special. Each week, Michelle introduces you to a prominent woman and takes a peek inside her life. Welcome to today's Wine Country Women podcast. I'm Michelle Mandreau, and I am with Natalie Bath, who's the winemaker at Red Estate here in the Napa Valley. Natalie, it is fantastic to be with you today. You work for one of my favorite brands. Thank you for having me, Michelle. And truthfully, like this is an absolute incredible honor to be on your show. Oh, you're too kind, <laughs> but super sweet of you to say. Well, let's jump in and talk about your career because everybody has a unique story. You have one as well. You're a California girl. You actually grew up in St. Helena. I love St. Helena. After college, you thought you were going to get a law degree. I did, yes. Okay. Would have been a horrible lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> you do now, right? Yes, now. <laughs> but what I read was you came back home here to the Napa Valley and you were reminded of how fantastic it is. Is that true? It is very true. I had an opportunity to work uh, my junior year of college here at home for Mike Thompson when I was following more of a political science degree. Because it was an unpaid internship, I did have to... Uh, make some money during those six months. And so I worked at Angel Restaurant in Napa, which has been here for over 20 years at this point. And it was really, I would say, a deeper dive into the wine industry than I was currently familiar with, not only just from wine, but seeing winemakers on a regular basis coming into the restaurant and understanding the winery a little bit more. And so I finished up my degree at Loyola Marymount, but moved back kind of focusing more on my LSAT degree and finishing that up. And it wasn't until I was told actually about what you could do during a harvest that I was like, oh, they they let anybody go and do that? And I, I did have to, you know, be a little bit more precise, but I it wasn't until I actually physically worked a vintage, which was 2010, that I really understood what went into winemaking. And you worked several harvest. Yes. <laughs> and you did harvest <laughs> in New Zealand as well. I did. To accelerate this story, you had a great opportunity to work with your childhood friend, Samantha Rudd. I did. And it, it's interesting. Especially Which started as a, a harvest, right? <laughs> it did start as a harvest. And so as you mentioned, you know, I, I was lucky enough to work at Villa Maria in New Zealand and then come back to the U.S. and I worked with Ted Lemon at Literai. And as I was trying to decide my next course of action at that point, Samantha had reached out to me and she was still you know, navigating her career at that point, knowing full well that she would end up at Rudd, but wasn't currently here. She said, you know, why don't you come work at Rudd as a Napa Valley experience? Specifically, I would say Oakville Cabernet Sauvignon, which had not really been checked on my resume. And initially I had thought, you know, that wasn't mm -hmm. something I was ready to take that step forward with. I had been proud of myself for making my own way and not really relying on a lot of people to you know influence my opportunities places and it was actually a perfect situation because Samantha wasn't here 
uh, I had to interview with her dad and with the current winemaker. And so I felt like I really gained that opportunity in 2012 to prove myself here with no real intention of staying, but it really worked out quite well because clearly I'm still here. Right. And you basically kind of worked your way up. I did. And I joke that, you know, I just wouldn't leave. So they just had to keep kind of throwing (laughs) me things. But I had an opportunity to work with Patrick Sullivan in 2012 and then Frederick Ammons in 2013 Mm -hmm. and really see the progression of what Rudd was capable of. And this is beyond just, you know, what you can do from a winemaking side, but really see what the vineyards are capable of and that ageability factor in the sense of just a more sophisticated, polished level of winemaking. And so I felt very lucky at the opportunity that as from a harvest intern to a seller rat, seller hand, however you best think about it, to anologist, assistant winemaker, and then winemaker, I feel very lucky at the opportunity. Well, not only were you lucky, They also gave you a chance to take a break and go work at Chateau Petrus. Yes, (laughs) which is a a wonderful opportunity and honestly something I I didn't expect. And Leslie Rudd was a huge impact in my career and what I was able to do and had a lot of faith in me. And when when he had asked me what my future goals were, I said, you know, the only thing I haven't been able to do yet is work in France. And he said, well, where would you want to work? And I said, honestly, I'd work anywhere. But... You know, at this point in time, I have a full-time position here. It's very hard to move in and out of that uh, seamlessly, and so I would hate to risk that based on the fact that I wanted to fulfill a childhood dream. And he said, well, I can help you with that. And he very much so connected me with the Bearway family and with the Moex family, and it worked out quite well. So I was gone for the, the red harvest of 2016, and it, it was incredible, not just to work for such an established, incredible chateau, but just to really experience something from a legacy perspective that the Rudds are really trying to do here in Napa Valley, which you're starting to see the glimmers of that, but that they are really uh, pushing and I would say succeeding with personally. In 2021, you were officially named the winemaker here at yes. Red Estate. What do you think you've brought to the brand now in that role? You know, to work for a a property and to work with a previous winemaker, vineyard manager, I think I've seen the progression, not only moving from a farm labor company to in-house farming, but to a winemaker that has been, had been here for seven to eight plus years. But I think the, the constant degree of moving upward, transitioning, being better, never being complacent. And I think that's something that in this valley you don't necessarily see. I think winemakers can jump around and, you know, look for the best opportunities and longevity is not something that happens quite often anymore. Exactly. And I think that's where I can add a level of perspective from working from the ground up that you don't necessarily see. Your first vintage all your own is the 2021 yes and if someone drinks a 2021 red estate wine what can they expect how do you describe your winemaking style 
Well, I think in general, Don't you know. Don't you hate that question? <laughs> <I know. laughs> Sorry. No, but I think it's important because I think there's a very clear, like a chef would in a restaurant, you know, mm-hmm. focusing on ingredients versus, I would say, personal impact. And I think so much of that is relevant to winemaking where my goal is not necessarily to show what I can do, but what the vineyard is capable right. of. And that's where I think... I've had this beautiful legacy leading up to where I am, where where I was put in charge that I wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel. I wasn't trying to, you know, put my impact in, but I think also coming off of a challenging vintage, like such as 2020, uh, and then going into 21 where, you know, the cards were stacked against you in the sense of yields and the actual irrigation and what you needed to do just because there was no rain but getting a quality vintage where the concentration, where the intensity and everything is just aligned, where I feel very lucky and honored to have that as my first vintage Vintage. here at Rudd. Are there any 2021 bottles still around at the winery? Yes, actually, before you came in today, we were just nitpicking the last little percent. So we're just finalizing. We actually won't bottle those until uh, July of this year. But I think, Mm -hmm. you know, for me, you know, I always love this idea of, you know, coming, bringing a blend together. But I think sometimes it takes time. And so we are at that point. We're in that final stretch of the vintage. And so I, I feel really confident and I obviously want it to be a success, but I think the vintage as a whole will lead that overall. Very exciting. Roughly, how much wine does Red Estate produce with the two labels? Yes, with the two labels. And so with the 40 acres here in Oakville and then the 16 acres up in Mount Veter, uh, you know, typically we've released, you know, anywhere between, I would say, 3,000 to 5,000 cases. Now, that was, I would say, crossroads which was something that Samantha and Oscar chose to bring back which I felt very honored and lucky because I became the I would say associate winemaker on that project which is for anyone who doesn't know a second label and entry level wine that really is just to give people access to rud that couldn't currently do that and the goal was to utilize the whole property so The unique part of that wine, I would say in particular, is it's all farmed from the two properties. It's made by the team here, but meant to be a little bit more approachable, a little bit more accessible from a, I would say, tasting profile and from a price standpoint because we're blending it to be that way. And so now you should see our case production go up words of six to 8,000 cases based on the vintage. Okay. Do you consider there to be a hidden gem in the portfolio? There's a couple, but I think, you know, obviously for me, the amount of time and energy that goes into the Oakville Estate Red, which is our top wine, to me is really the gem of the portfolio, just because to me it takes so much more to go into looking at Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, Petit Verdot, and Malbec and making them work cohesively together, of course, but... I think when you look at these other opportunities, you know, and you see a crossroads Cabernet Franc and like how incredibly challenging it can be to grow that, but also blend a cohesive blend together, that would be a very fun thing for people to experience. I think the 2021 Susan's Blanc, which is primarily Semillon and Sauvignon Gris and Sauvignon Blanc into there, uh, into that blend, which is only 84 cases is unique and 
I would say, interesting in and of itself. And so I think within RUD, you know, what people think of, we have these very fun productions that people would never expect that I love. Who do you think has influenced your career the most? I have so many stories I can't even tell you, but I would say huge factors in my life would be Robin Lail, Kathy Corison, Allison Tozioy from uh, Colgan for me. But I also have a group of women currently that we discuss farming practices and within this area, like Maya Dallavale and Priyanka French from Signorello and Evan Cameron. And so I think I have this incredible, very influential group of women that I feel very confident asking questions that I don't think you could necessarily ask in the past. But I think Kathy for me has always been very influential because she stayed very tried and true to her style and what she is capable of. And has never, you know, gone too ripe or too underripe. She's really stayed the course. And for me, I think in a time where wine can be very trendy, I'd like to see me being as consistent as she has uh, over the years. Wow. Let's hope Kathy hears this. (laughs) Oh my God, I would die. (laughs) (laughs) Top moment of your career so far. Oh my goodness. You know, there's a couple overall, but I think More recently, we did produce 2020 Vintage, which has been a very tumultuous, controversial vintage as a whole. But we've recently gotten very high quality scores and accolades, which to me, Rudd has always prided itself on the fact that we're not very score driven, but we're very internally proud of what we do. But in a vintage where people have felt very similar to 2011, where the vintage will be written off, you know, initially, but will come back. I feel very confident that we did the right thing by not only producing the wine, but, you know, putting it out there as a very top high profile wine uh, for the vintage as a whole. What's the future hold for you? You know, it's very interesting for me because as someone who grew up here in the Valley and knowing the Rudds and specifically Samantha, you know, I think for me now seeing her having children and seeing that legacy actually regularly, meaning like these boys are out in the vineyard and, you know, running around and knowing what's going on. I love this idea of this generational impact that a property and a family can have here in the Valley, which we're only just scraping the surface of that. And we're seeing that second, third generation really coming in. And I feel very lucky to really just be a part of that success for the future of the Valley. That doesn't tell me what you want, you know, what's on the horizon for you. Do you, as a winemaker, what's your wish list or what do you, what are you hoping to strive for? I think a winemaker, you know, has everything from varieties to equipment to things that can just overall be interesting and just, you know, eye-opening for the brain to play with. But I think for me overall is I really want to see the Napa Valley thrive. I think there's been, obviously we have a huge struggle ahead of us in terms of climate change and what the future will bring, but I'd really love to be a part of a process where we look at Cabernet Sauvignon as not just something that was a trend that worked and now we're instantly going to plant Grenache or Tanat or other things, but really look at it as how can we make this a sustainable variety for the future? And I think leading to that is just really how you farm and what your goals are and being an impact in the organic community and in the biodynamic community for me is a huge, uh, more so than me getting accolades or anything that like that, but leaving a legacy of just a better land for the future. Well, and organic farming, 
I know it's important to you as well. We have had so much rain. <laughs> so much. It's so wonderful. Much. <laughs> and somebody reminded me, this is normal, and we just haven't seen normal for <laughs> so long. Exactly. But we've had so much rain. Uh, you know, what do you think that will do to the 2023 vintage? I mean, for me, it's very exciting, especially coming off of 20s, 21s, 22s. I mean, if you had asked me this time of year either last year in 21 I mean we were talking about just irrigating the vineyard to give it a little boost to just get to the beginning of bud break and like giving the can just like that initial you know start to the canopy whereas this year I mean if you drive by rud right now this cover crop is insane and it just really gives you an idea of what we can hopefully expect for the season which is maybe more ample canopies you know a more sustainable long season if we can hold up to it but I think the reality is is we're going to see uh, colder weather at the beginning and we're going to see warmer weather towards the end of the season so being prepared and I think taking advantage of this to me uh, is the most important thing which is just getting that canopy established making sure we get through the spring bud break and through a flower and set and then just you know making sure we don't make any you know poor decisions in the next couple months is the goal. I doubt that you'll make any poor decisions. <laughs> <laughs> as long as we don't have any rain or snow in the middle of summer. <laughs> oh, but how fabulous is it seeing snow on the mountains? That was Napa. I mean, when I was a child, you know, we saw it in... Dusting. Dusting, just but flurries, but never stick. Exactly, and it's just this incredible beauty that we don't think about and it it really brings you back to the Mm -hmm. present and aware of what mother nature is capable of and just appreciating uh, every year for what it gives what it brings right i think there's going to be a lot of beautiful christmas cards from (laughs) my god exactly (laughs) this year (laughs) from wine country with snow it's true learn more about the women who live in wine country when you purchase one of our lifestyle books at winecountrywomen.com. Natalie, we're going to move on to your personal life. Oh, excellent. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so you live in the town of Napa. You grew up in St. Helena. How did you choose to live in Napa? You know, I have family that still lives in St. Helena, and I loved it and appreciate it from a fact that I could walk across the street as a child to my elementary school and then a couple blocks down from my middle school and for the you know just the small town feeling yeah. I would mm-hmm. say that was really lovely and while it's a little different now you know we didn't have to lock our doors you know it was very open community feeling but for me seeing Napa really I would say blossom into what it's capable of and growing up Napa was very small podunk town you know there was like a couple hotels a couple restaurants and they were incredible but really seeing something be established for a long-term community is really exciting for me I think there was an intern community which is you know a 20s to 30s age group that then would leave and never stay and now seeing restaurants wine bars wine shops that actually are encouraging people to stay long term really gives me a lot of faith for what the city of Napa has to offer uh, down the road. 
It really came into its own. Oh my gosh, a hundred percent. It took it a while, but yeah. Oh yes, and yes, <laughs> um, especially after two thousand eight. And if anyone can remember, you know, if Oxbow opened and there was no one inside, and it was very daunting. And I think now, I mean, you can't get a seat anywhere, anywhere. in Oxbow, and so it's it's clearly thrived. I would say in a very in a situation where you wouldn't normally expect it. So that's why you moved to Napa yes. because it's hip and happening. So <laughs> hip and happening. <laughs> um, so if we take a step inside your home, what would we see? What's your decorating style? You know, I'm very minimal. Um, I have plants, which give me this idea of energy and just being able to make something other than grapevines <laughs> grow. Um, but I think also more importantly, you have photos from very important parts of my life. And then also on top of that, I, I I do have a tendency to keep wine bottles that are very specific to anniversaries, birthdays, dinners that just stay with me. And I think that brings it back to where wine hits a different level, uh, where it's a memory. It's something that can just be a constant reminder. And these aren't, you know, crazy vintages of Burgundy or things like that, that are kind of more collectible level, but just something that stood out that, you know, my sister's birthday, you know, we opened in 85 Spring Mountain that just was incredibly perfect for the moment, you know, or a, I would say a 2002 rud that just Sauvignon Blanc, that you're like, Sauvignon Blanc shouldn't age that well. And so these are just constant reminders that wine can be so perfect for the people you're with, the food you're with, and just the overall experience. A minimalist, but with a lot of bottles. So many (laughs) bottles. I look like a hoarder, like I don't recycle. Okay. (laughs) When you kick back and relax, what kind of music do you like to listen to? I'm a sucker for the 80s. I would say I also have a strong 90s to early 2000s R&B profile. I can listen to current music, but I just really think it takes time to appreciate certain levels. And so there's a little bit of metal. There's a little bit of rock that hair bands to be honest, really stand out to me. So I'm a very, I wouldn't say you'd look at me and feel that you know my music style. I agree. I would not (laughs) say hair bands were in her wheelhouse. (laughs) Do you have a hobby? Do you collect anything other than (laughs) wine bottles? (laughs) I read a ton. I'm definitely a fiction junkie. I definitely love a good murder mystery. I can sit for hours and just devour things as basic as more current reading where you look at the Robert Galbraith to like, you know, Michael Connelly. I can dive deep into that realm. I grew up reading in general. And so for me, I would say that fits into my you know time of day that either early in the morning or late at night and then more recently I've gotten into paddle boarding which has been really fun and just a an alternative exercise for me that just hits for being outdoors but uh, taking advantage of the area we live in and the environment and whether that's Tahoe or Lake Berryessa or along the coast it's it's very fun that my husband and I can do together you've probably done quite a bit of traveling Yes, I have. I'm very fortunate in that regard. Is there a particular trip that stands out that maybe has great meaning? You know, I've I've been very lucky to have traveled a lot in my life. I think most recently in 2019, I went to Sicily as part of a bigger Italian trip and being exposed to the culture, the people, the food, the want, everything just was 
incredibly personal and family oriented that just really spoke to a bigger picture of what I'd love to see uh, Napa Valley come back to um, and the importance of that. And so that to me just was fabulous. Is it as rustic as people say? Rustic, but in a very true, I would say, polished way, because I think rustic and polished can be, you know, are the polar ends of the spectrum. But I think rustic in that you get the best way to put it is very true and honest. And then the polished, you know, is just like the qualitative level of it, most importantly. Is there something people might be surprised to learn about you? Do you skydive? I'd love to say I was a better cook or that I really thrived in the kitchen and I don't. My husband, I joke, really downgraded with me, but he is incredibly uh, well-versed not only in the kitchen, but just in his smells and the way he tastes. And so I'm not a very good cook. I I can make a couple things, but that's about it. Uh, Solid, I would say poached egg and grilled cheese, but that is about the extent of my culinary expertise. Okay, well, don't forget, folks, she makes fantastic wine. <laughs> and that's, again, all my energy goes to that. <laughs> right. Okay, so she can make wine. She's just not good with dishes. Yes, easily distracted. Right. <laughs> there you go. What's your favorite pairing? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I do look for, I think, white wine in general is more typically thought of as an aperitif or a for lack of a better way of putting it a patio pounder and I love to see where I can really make white wine a little bit more involved in a meal and so for me always bringing it back to rudd obviously I think our Sauvignon Blanc really does well with like a roasted spice rub chicken which I think people wouldn't necessarily assume I think white wine with spicy food uh, especially with that high acid is incredibly exciting for me to see. I think pushing the boundaries with that certain profile, be it Chardonnay, a Sauvignon Blanc, a Gruner, what you can do from a, a complete meal is more exciting to me sometimes even than a red. I agree. So a secret place in the valley. If I tell you, it won't be a secret anymore. Uh, if you ever do a hike in the Westwood Hills, it's incredibly lovely and just you really look over the sprawl of Napa Valley, you know, Napa City, I would say, even in particular, and it just feels smaller but bigger at the same time. I think if you were to actually go up to Mount Veter, particularly where our white varieties and a couple red Bordeaux varieties grow, it's at 1,600 feet, and it's quiet. It's very calm, and you just are above the fog line, and it's just this very internal feeling of being solitary that I think is very unique in and of itself. And then last but not least, I would say uh, there's one bar in Napa Valley. It's a French bistro um, that I have already mentioned in this uh, interview that I won't say again, but it's probably the best bar in the whole valley. And you really feel like you're getting an authentic experience uh, and qualitative food that is just in and of itself unique. If you didn't live in the Napa Valley... I think I'd live abroad, to be honest. Where? Where? Uh, Everywhere from, I would say, France to Italy. If I had to stay in the U.S., I probably could see myself more in Santa Barbara or a little bit more down south. I need that sunshine. But I think abroad, you know, I've talked about moving to the south of France and seeing something just a little bit more of a B&B and winemaking and 
just more of a family aspect, but I think in Italy, I can see myself more in that Sicilian and Sicily kind of region, just really, again, feeling kind of the isolation, but in a positive way, mm-hmm. and just embracing that volcanic soil from what I've experienced here and bringing it to there. A few things on your bucket list. Or have you done them all? <laughs> no, I definitely haven't. South Africa is a part of the world that I would love to experience. The Molyneux wines have been very inspirational for me from a, what Chenin Blanc can be and other white varieties, and I'd love to go experience a southern harvest there. Uh, when I was in New Zealand, I was lucky enough to spend and travel a lot of time there, but I never made it to Australia, and to me that was a kick, you know, that I, I should have made that a priority, but... You know, I ran out of money, which makes it harder to stay. <laughs> but uh, there's a, it's more traveling, I would say, than anything. Well, we're going to wrap things up with five quick questions Ooh, now. Yay. Are you ready? Yes. I'm okay. Ready. What kind of car do you drive? I drive a 2006 Volvo XC90. All right. Yes. Favorite flower? Ooh, rosemary flowers, I would say, or lavender between the two. Favorite holiday? Christmas. Who is one of your dream dinner companions? Oh, that's so tough. I'd probably have to go to winemaking, which could be so challenging. You know, obviously still alive would be Warren Winarski. And then I would say Robert Mondavi, uh, who has passed away. But I would love to pick his brain just from a previous view of the Napa Valley and how it's changed. Okay. And last question. What's... One of your favorite movies. This might be embarrassing. <laughs> I'm a Gone with the Wind sucker, I would say. But then on a more, I would say, fun level, I I, I really appreciate Tommy Boy <laughs> as well. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. So now I got to go check yes, it out. Different, definitely different spectrums is how <laughs> I will put it. <laughs> Natalie, this has been so much fun. You're a delight. And I'm thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on here. Visit winecountrywomen.com to join our exclusive list so you can be the first to learn about upcoming offers and events. Grab a glass and join us next week for a new edition of Wine Country Women.